and good morning. Welcome to the Old School on a nice, beautiful, sunny day in North Texas uh, in mid-December. Uh, this season nigh upon us, the season by which we will not, not speak of. Uh, we've done it too many times, but rather we're going to talk about, well, frankly, anything we're interested in talking about. It sometimes, most of the time, deals with education, but it could deal with a whole host of things. And with me in this endeavor is Herr Dr. Bourgeois. Good morning, Dr. Bourgeois. Hey, Miller. It's good to see you. I was I, I missed the countdown. I'm going to do a, a silent countdown before you, you start the episode, and you just kind of jump right in. So I'm a step behind now. I'll be behind for the whole podcast. That's when we that's when we did the other audio program because we had to have the countdown to to know when things were starting. Now things are starting because we're back on Zoom. Things are starting as soon as you press record. So so it's a visual cue. Yeah. So well whatever however you want to char- characterize it. Okay. You know, okay. Whatever whatever helps you understand it and feel more comfortable with it. Uncomfortable to begin with. You mentioned the season and the holidays, and I've, I've already gone on record, you know, finding it uh, repeatedly. Yeah, for months on end. I mean, it's actually a, the a, about. I would say a quarter of the year would be the holiday season. You know, starting in October, going through the football games in January. But I can't help but think that your attitude about holidays is somewhat manufactured, somewhat put upon. <laughs> it's, not, it's not possible that your heart, three sizes too small, uh, to uh, quote uh, the great Dr. Seuss, it's not possible that you are so such a curmudgeon that you do not see some of the uh, more wonderful elements of the holiday season. Certainly you like joy, Maybe on some level, and maybe you have to look for it deeper. I don't know. I don't seek out happiness. I seek out my work, Miller. I think that's that's why I have failed, or others have succeeded. <laughs> Say it here and now. What was it? Uh, George Wells said he grew up in he grew up in Illinois, and his friends decided to be Cardinal fans, and they grew up liberal and happy. And he chose to become a Cubs fan, and he grew up conservative and angry. <laughs> so you you went a direction different from all your other friends. That, that that would be true about the Cubs fans. You've you've already talked about them saying they're what do you call them insufferable? Is that well, long suffering, long suffering? <laughs> that's for sure. But but they they finally got their comet or their uh, World Series. That was. In fact, we were there, uh, not when they won, but a few days after, if I recall. Yeah. The thing about the Cubs fans, and I think I've mentioned it before, is that the Cubs fans have historically mixed two things that typically do not go together. Ineptitude and arrogance. You know, typically, you're either inept at, you're either inept at something and feel bad and ashamed for your ineptitude. Or you're incredible at it, and therefore there's a certain level of arrogance that comes into that. Cubs fans have historically chosen both paths, which is does not seem possible. But I think I remember the first Cubs game I saw. I saw the Cubs play the Astros down in Houston, 
and they were just annoying. And that was before their World Series. They had not won a World Series in over a century. And yet, they were arrogant about the fact that they were Cubs fans. And so part of it, I want to I wanna perhaps separate it between the nouveau popular Cubs fans, the ones who have the brand new Cubs hat that clearly has not seen much wear or tear, and the traditional hardcore generational Cubs fans who accepted their misery, perhaps with a little bit of a badge of honor, but nevertheless, they accepted the misery. And so perhaps we're talking about two different groups of people. I don't know, but. Well, the part you're losing me, you're calling them inept and arrogant. And I don't know how fans can be inept. I mean, their team can be inept. But what, what about, how can you have an inept fan base? Here, here's the reason. <laughs> because you have a group of fans who talk as if they're on the team. <laughs> and you hear this all the time. We, we killed the Cowboys last week. We, what position do you play exactly? And because you have this kind of fan orientation as if they're actually part of the process, unfortunately, you then get the orientation of somebody who feels that they have a reason to be arrogant or they have a reason to be inept, you know, or what have you. They take on the characteristics of the team. And so um, it's a strange dynamic, I'll grant you. But I'm going to stick with it. Okay. Thank you, Herr Miller. Um, I'm not sure where this conversation <laughs> started or how we ended up in bashing the the people of Chicago or very, very nice people. I'm not bashing. I'm merely, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm merely speaking truth to power, uh, Steve. Uh, that's what I do here. And so... <laughs> <laughs> but what we're going to talk about today is something that we have not talked about in its pure form. We've talked about it in terms of how it appears in education, how it is to teach it, and something like that. But I wanted to talk about it more from a context of uh, us as fans, and that has to do with music. Now, one of the things that I always was kind of distressed about is when I would talk to students who were in the band and they would play jazz or they would play other kinds of music, but they didn't listen to it. You and I are both fans, so but you are the musician of the two of us. So you are the more... Um, you know, adroit with the knowledge of jazz and the kind of particulars of jazz, your your skill set allows you to be much more informed of the style. From the time you started playing music, how does what you play shape what you listen to? Wow. Um, I mean, I always listen to classical music and jazz, but then I also would listen to you know, popular music, you know, particularly classic rock and other things. So, I'd, <clears throat> so I, I think there's. It's almost like part of it is. I mean, I would call it you know serious art music on a different plane. I mean, I'm talking particularly about classical music, and so it's really difficult for me to speak about that in the same breath of anything. I mean, jazz has. Uh, you could call it the American classical music in a way. 
um but but still it's it's to me there there's a difference between classical music and jazz and then popular music is on a different plane and that's me being arrogant which is really what i am come to think of it <laughs> well, let's talk about it in terms of the things that you perhaps play we talk about classical music or jazz what is the difference between being a fan or an admirer of classical music <clears throat> in contrast to you know being a fan or, or, or you know of jazz music how do you what are the what is the difference in the musicianship but also the fandom of those two forms of music well with um any type of music but particularly classical music you need to listen to a piece multiple times to unwrap it and it, so it, you're typically not going to be blown away the first time you hear it and it's going to sound different every time and and the the process you know as a musician as a classical musician particularly is that you're learning expectation and that's a listening skill <clears throat> so you're in the moment but you're also predicting what's going to happen next and the more data you have meaning listening the more <clears throat> accurate you are with those predictions and and the more you enjoy the piece so you're in this flow state and the composer or listen to a piece by Mozart and, and it feels like there's a sequence which is a repeated pattern and then suddenly there's an ornament or there's a a false cadence or, or a different move and it, it's not only surprising but suddenly it becomes satisfying and it feels right and and so that's the the genius of of the composer is they they take you along they surprise you they they build up with anticipation of some sort of resolution and the more insightful you are, the more you can actually ride along and enjoy that. And so you go a whole lifetime listening to these pieces and they actually grow with depth every time you hear them. Do you think it is, I'm wondering about the difference between being a fan of say classical music without having the ability to play. So to not be able to understand music at that level, does that change how you appreciate classical music? Or do you think classical music, perhaps like other kinds of music, that there are there are ways in which you can enjoy it at the same level as someone who plays? I think everybody has a, a different set of ears and a different set of expectations. Um, so I can't really say what, you know, they're, the other people what what their experience is but knowing some of the technical aspects i mean you know what's possible on the instruments mm. um and, and and you know something about harmony i mean i studied you know in, in high school I, I i took voice leading and composition and and so knowing you know what what's behind all that and and i think what you gain as a performer is um you you understand that there's a there's the immediate experience but there's also a bigger structure under that piece and you and you and you see a, i think you have a broader longer context so you're not just in the now but you also see where it started and, and you realize it's telling a, a story it's a it's a tragedy that's happening uh typically and, that, and that's the the best music has an air of, of, of the, the tragic in it and so you're able to appreciate that but also playing when you're practicing um you're you're learning that and you're you're learning the the subtlety the, the details of, of the phrase you've watched pianists how they they move their wrists up and down a little bit and that's not an affectation that's not a performing 
uh, technique for the audience sake, but when your hand is lifted, your, your finger is farther from the key, meaning you can't play as loudly. And so it's a way to regulate the sound very subtly. And so with your, as a non-musician, you don't know that, and you're watching them raise their arms like they're, they're doing something uh, that's important, but it, but it really has to do with execution. Uh, and that's just the beginning. I guess that's my first take on it, but there's a lot of subtlety and complexity that you only develop if you if you're if you performed and performed to a certain level on an instrument. I'm very fascinated by this concepts, these concepts, and 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 at the risk of sounding like I'm blowing smoke, you know, we've had some great guests on who have talked about their various uh, expertise, <clears throat> but I don't think we've really dug into your expertise, and I think and I think clearly one of them has to do with music, and I feel like it's 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 been a hole in our repertoire that we really have not talked about this. When you compare classical music with jazz music. What is the difference for you as a musician and how you appreciate jazz music compared to classical? Or is it the same? Um, it's it, it's different because it's, I, I mean, at, at a certain level, when you're performing any any piece, there's a level of improvisation. It may not be the, the notes, but it's the way that you play with the tempo or, or dynamics or, or whatever. So, so a performer, no matter what, you know, particularly a soloist, has a lot of control. But in jazz, you know, they're they're changing the melody. the The art of of playing is to listen to a structure. And jazz pieces do have structure. Typically, um, I mean, it it may be a it's a popular song. Typically, that's that's you're a blues. Um, but then you're creating a new melody uh, over that, and are, and you're also changing the chords slightly within the i mean you're adding extra chords really that lead from the the, the main chord um but 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 it's live it's and so it's this incredible creative um moment you know even if you're playing solo you're you're taking you're listening to yourself and then you get an idea and then you solidify that idea by going with it and playing it out and then imagine playing with a a group say a quartet you know people are you know the the quartet they're all listening and and so you you do some something and it becomes accentuated. Suddenly the bass player gets that idea and is working with it. Um, so there's an interplay and it's all live. And so it's highly creative and in the moment. Um, so there's really nothing like it when you're playing. It's a high that you can't really. Well, I'm, I guess I'm trying to explain it now. But but that's a, I think the difference that you have a lot more freedom. You know, still within the confines of that tune and the and the tradition because you're you're playing something that but someone walks into the room they'll say oh that's jazz i hear it but the right the subtlety is is that you're actually inventing constantly and you're never playing anything the same at least the the, the good players because they're they're listening to themselves and they're delighting themselves um mm -hmm. with they're surprising themselves would you say because of the improvisational nature of jazz that it requires perhaps a greater amount of musicianship or skill, or is it just a question of comparing two things that you can't really compare? Um, it, it, it's different. I, I mean, you you watch a say a, a classical pianist, a great one, and and they're doing things physically, you know, that jazz players could never do. I mean, there are a few crossovers, but not many, um, because they just have to practice so much, and it's a physical. 
Usually with improvisation, you you tend, at least I tend not to be pressing so hard on the boundaries of technique. And that's something that I've I've done as I've gotten older, because early on, yeah, I was um, trying to show off. And that was, and that's always behind jazz a little bit too, is, right. is, is to show off. But the but at the same time, I guess conversely, uh, uh, most classical musicians can't imp- improvise. They they have their head on the paper, you know, in the in the manuscript, and they're not able to go off of that. I mean, I could be playing a piece by Bach and then transition it into something totally new, you know, right on right on the spot. And uh, that's because of the you know imp- improvising is different. You have to learn your instrument in a different way because you know the the art of improvisation is knowing what you're what what it's going to sound like when you play something and and most classical musicians know the piece that they're playing but anything outside of that they they couldn't predict what it's going to sound like and you've heard some jazz players particularly pianists who are singing along or humming or doing something it's it's them they're in real time creating and singing so so there's no differentiation between the hand and the ear and so it's in sync and you know exactly what you're playing at that moment out and it's not on the paper so that's the difference i think so the person who can do both is perhaps the more rare bird i'm thinking there's two names that come to mind and i could be completely wrong because i don't like i said i don't have that expertise but two names that i think of that kind of flirt between classical and jazz George Shearing and someone like Andre Previn, where both of them have, if I understand it correctly, both of them have a very steeped tradition in classical, but both of them seem to also at times have the ability to cross over into jazz. Is that, am I reading that correct? Is that, would that be two examples of that kind of musician? Yeah, I, I mean George Shearing is is a, is a little bit different. I mean he puts classical elements into his his jazz. Um, okay. But Andre Previn was initially um, uh, he 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 could write musicals. He could you know arrange. He was an incredible arranger and a great jazz jazz player. You know, and that was sort of his first his first life and, and so very famous and very, very good. And, and he had a melodic gift. I mean, he could create, he did just what I was talking about, but so well, you know, creating these melodies over the melodies, had a unique style played rhythmically, could really swing and really press. Um, but later on he, he transitioned. In fact, he became a conductor first of the Pittsburgh symphony. And then a, another, I think a European symphony, it's escaping me now. Um, but top tier, you know, top tier uh, symphony, and so he he learned to conduct. I think I think his father was a, a, a great musician also, but he learned to conduct by doing musical type conducting of, of, of arrangements of jazz tunes and so forth. So he he knew what he was doing and he loved it. Uh, and I, but his background probably was both. And and then even during that time as a conductor. Uh, he would. He was a performer, so he would perform Mozart concerti. He would put, perform all kinds of things, you know, and he did a lot of chamber music, you know, which is you know it's surprising how many conductors uh, you think, oh, I didn't know they could play the piano, or you know, but they they could, and they they that was their beginning, and and so they play with you know these small ensembles, but they also 
lead an orchestra and you can even lead an orchestra from the piano or from the keyboard and that's how it was done in the baroque period so previn is a different kind of cat you know because he could right. do everything at the highest highest level you know in, in all these fields it's quite remarkable isn't it true though you talk about conductors usually most of them can play multiple instruments and wood i mean that do you is that you think that's a quality that allows a conductor to perhaps better direct different segments of the group because they have that experience with multiple instruments or do you think it's do you think there are conductors out there that can do the job without having that firsthand knowledge i think you need to know how to play something well but playing a bunch of instruments i mean the idea like of a, a band teacher a high school teacher who can play the different um wind instruments it, it's really to be able to instruct and you know and so when you're talking with beginners yes you need to be able to know how they make the what are the fingerings how is the embouchure but when you're conducting you know in a symphony with with adults uh, you're not teaching them much but you're teaching them how how you envision the piece i think there's some advantage in uh knowing string instruments when you're with an orchestra because bowing you know th those are decisions you know it's not like here's exactly how you bow a piece and so they and they need to know that as a player attacks with you know with the down bow it's going to be louder and then as they go on it gets softer and they need to watch the bow you know quickly when you're playing with a soloist because eventually they're going to run out of bow and they're done so you need to be sensitive to that you know and there are alternate type fingerings where you get into third position and you're playing very high so knowing that helps but but no it's not necessary to know multiple i wouldn't i mean someone like leonard bernstein for example was, was a really good pianist you know i think a lot of them piano is a instrument um, i think that a lot of the better conductors share because you get a you can they spend a lot of time looking at the score playing transcriptions and, and learning about the whole piece so that gives you an advantage but but the main thing is they need to know someone something. like someone like duke ellington perhaps yeah yeah they need yeah but but they need to know something pretty well but i mean yeah duke ellington was a i mean a lot of the jazz band leaders were were pianists hmm. You're talking about the affect, quote-unquote affectations mm -hmm. that is prominent in some of the, the classical presentations of music. In jazz, it seems more extreme. And I don't know, and maybe I'm misreading it, but I think about somebody like, and you kind of alluded to it, someone like Keith Jarrett, who tends to kind of mumble and, and, and kind of murmur to himself as he's playing. Or you think of someone like Bill Evans, who looks like he his back is broken. He's just kind of so hunched over the keyboard that it, you know, it's everything that you hear keyboarders are not supposed to do. You know, you think about the, you know, upright, you know, kind of straight back kind of a thing. And and Bill Evans played as if there was something wrong with him physically. Does that does does body posture, does murmuring or uh, vocal kind of uh, uh, musings? Does that does that is that a kind of a byproduct of them getting into the music or is that part of the expression of the music where does that come from well let, let's take them separately let's talk about keith jarrett who's a wonderful jazz pianist i think maybe the best of the the century the past hundred years one and for me wow. yeah so it's a short list um but he did pure improvisations and that's what he was most famous for initially where he would just sit 
put his head down and play for 45 minutes, take a break, and then do the same thing, and then play a, a standard at the end. And, and um, but, but he also played with um, a lot of people like Miles Davis early on. And then later, he, he switched to playing with a, a trio with uh, I guess Gary Pe- Peacock, Jack Dijonette, this, uh, that became one of the most well-known prominent trios. Um, but he's talked about this, about what happens, you know, when, when he's, it's not just humming, but he has these outbursts, you know, sometimes almost these, uh, what do you call it when you're in this religious state and, and you're, a euphoria, euphoria, that's right. And it comes out. And so he'll sigh, he'll do these, but it's, it's joyful often, but, but, but he said that the, you know, he's in this state um, where, where, you know, it's almost this I thou where he's completely in, in the moment and he, and he's surprising, delighting himself. But when he's uh, has this, the, the sounds coming out, I guess, vocalizing it's because the, the music that he's playing doesn't completely capture the moment that he's having internally. And so it wouldn't come out. He couldn't even, um, define it musically by playing it because he's having an even higher experience that that is beyond words, beyond music. And and I thought that was profound. But there's some so once again, he's having a musical experience that none of us can have because we're getting this incredible thing that that we hear and there's even more going on internally. Um so that's part of it. Um the the other part of kind of singing along, I mean that's vocalizing while you're playing particularly a keyboard instrument that you can't i mean if you're playing a wind instrument you're doing it already um but um that's a a sign once again that you know what you're going to be playing and so you're singing along with yourself in real time and someone like bill evans Mm -hmm. that um he tends to i mean a lot of times i mean i do this as a performer you tend to cocoon and that's introverting and so so he's having this experience yes there's an audience out there but um he's also mainly playing for himself and so um but he's he's looking at the the the, looking at his hands that that's the simplest explanation you know he's watching his hands he's not necessarily playing with his eyes closed some do um but he's in this this space and um not not in pain but for I can't imagine Bill Evans getting out what he did, sitting up straight in a perfect classical posture, because right. there's a tension of that. And leaning over, it relaxes your hands. And he was a real, he had this incredibly lucid, sweet touch. And, and to do that, I think in that relaxed state is what he needed. Um, and, and then he ignored the world. I mean, he was actually very introverted and not a performer. So in some sense, he wasn't performing. He was, you know, performing for himself, but not externally. Do you think there's a difference in a group dynamic, be it a trio, quartet, or a orchestra, when the conductor is a piano player as opposed to something like a drummer? And I think about someone like Gene Krupa. I think of someone like Buddy Rich. They all they all had their own bands do you think the dynamic is more tense and do you think that creates not a not a better product necessarily but a different product compared to a a, a group that's led by a pianist 
I don't know. I wouldn't generalize that. I mean, from my own experience, I've had band leaders, you know, who are drummers, and they <laughs> they tend to be a bit rigid. Rigid. They're they they're all about the the tempo, but rigid meaning they're not going to slow down to, to let it breathe. You know, that's right. you know they they tend. I mean, it's hard to execute that as percussionist. But uh, I remember accompanying or working with a vocalist. Um, and but with this with a drummer who is the band leader and i'd I'd never met this the singer but she was really good and there was a bass player and um so so we were i guess so that's a quartet right there we were playing and you know some ballads so some slow things and and he he wanted the tempo to be a little bit faster and very regimented and then at one point he he took a break and he he went out and and we played a tune the trio and Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and and she remarked to me how flexible it was suddenly, you know, and, and that I would listen to her phrase and 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 take some time. So that that, but that's again a one example. And I I don't know as far as generalizing. I'm sure there's some great great conductors who are percussionists for sure. It is interesting because you think about you know I think about someone like Buddy Rich, and he was such a he was such an over the top dynamic personality. And I sometimes wonder if he suffered for that as far as, you know, the expectation is that he took on a bigger role within the, within the confines of an orchestra than perhaps a drummer should. But it seems like the smaller the group gets, the more important the drummer becomes because then, you know, the drummer is a part of what kind of drives the tempo. It typically, you know, maybe that's more a rock thing, you know, because I think about someone like Charlie Watts of the stones the stones are not the stones without charlie watts and i think he had a, he had a particular kind of style that kind of helped drive that engine whereas in a jazz uh, uh formation it becomes a little bit of a different sort of an animal yeah it, it kind of depends on what what era you're talking about and and what the role is i mean even when you get to bebop the the drummer is not i mean it's doing time but a whole lot more you know, and, and really commenting on the the soloist and what's what's happening, and they get real involved in a. I guess the traditional way. I mean, what what I always recommend is when you're listening to a say a jazz trio, uh, is you listen to the bass player as a listener because they are making the rhythm. The rhythm is led by that bass player because there's there's a there are two notes that a bass player plays. They they have the snap. And then they have the actual note that's on the beat, and that that's what keeps the the swing happening. So as a listener, listen to the bass player, and you'll get into that. And then the the drummer is spot on, you know, and they're they're playing on the on that second bass beat, and it's 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 perfect. But the so the 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 best uh, ensembles have a bass player and a drummer who who practice together and are, are in tune. I mean, my dad played. Uh, with some um with a trio and, and the, he said that the bass player and the drummer they they spent hours together just playing time and playing time is when you're just just doing that playing quarter notes on the beat with the drummer just and and that's it's so subtle but they have to be locked in um and and then the then it makes it like you're just walking on air when you play with them because they're so 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 on perfect um but but i think that the the part that's maybe misunderstood is the role of the bass player to to really set the tempo and the drummer is doing it's not just playing time but doing so much more to accentuate everything i think 
for a lot of people, the drummer has kind of like an unreasonable role within the within a group. Because I think most people think of drummers as kind of unrestrained <laughs> musicians, you know, that they're, they're always waiting for their drum solo kind of a thing. And, and Buddy Rich certainly kind of succumbed to that on many cases. I think about someone like um, Jimmy Cobb, who played with Miles Davis, you know, on Kind of Blue and some of his other albums. I think about someone like Max Roach. I think about someone like Art Blakey and the, the Jazz Messengers, where, I mean, Blakey could could kind of stand out a bit, but he was also kind of better known to allow the rest of the musicians to shine because that was really kind of part of the focus of the jazz messengers was to kind of bring new talent. That's why the lineup constantly changed over Blakey's life. And so there's this notion that the drums are there, but they don't hold the prominence. They are a part, they fit is probably the best way of saying it. They fit within what the other musicians are doing. They're not doing anything separate from the rest of the group. Um, I mean, you're talking about the type of drummer that I like to play with. I like them playing with brushes also, you know, as opposed to sticks for the most part. Um, and, but that's the, the style that I, that I play. Um, drum solos um, that certainly have a place. And, and there's something in, a, in an up, you know, fast jazz tune that, that's called training fours, where you do four measures of, of maybe a, a piano solo, then the pianist drops out. And then the drum drummer takes those takes four measures and does their thing, and then the piano player miraculously just nails that next beat, comes right in, does something cool, and the drummer follows. And and they, and they, and doing that is is a great time. It's sort of this. It's not just a compromise, but I think it's a perfect way to set up the final verse, and so then and then you play it out. Um, and so that's the kind of moments that I think the, that the drummer should do do something. And, and if, if they're really talented, yeah, let them let them do their thing. Um, but every piece doesn't need a drum solo uh, necessarily or a bass solo. Um, and, and bass solos are, you know, can be wonderful. I mean, you you have some melodic players who are just incredibly good at that uh, as well. Uh, and and they need to be heard because sometimes. A lot of old records, you have a bass solo, and nobody can hear. What was that? What was that? Didn't you know? So, but yeah. in, a, in a good studio recording, where you can hear everything, they're surprisingly melodic and, and beautiful. Some of the greatest moments are bass solos. So the engineer really becomes kind of the hero of the recording to be able to pull that out so that people can hear it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not ideal maybe for a big arena, but in an intimate setting where everybody can hear the the bass it's 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 a it's an incredible moment you know because it gets quiet and the pianist is just i mean they they play they don't just sit out i mean sometimes they do but mainly they're playing just a little chord here and and trying to comp which and comp is means like being complimentary they're hitting little chords to accentuate so they're listening hit something there and listen and and then as soon as the bass solo is getting finished the temp or the volume typically goes up and the bass player gives it away saying okay i'm done and they, they start playing time again and that's a real cool moment and then it locks in with everybody you're talking about the fact that you know classical music is this very structured format this is something that is that is um that it, it serves the uh the notes on the page and that jazz, while improvisational, also has its own structure. But the great thing about jazz is that it's a structure, you know, the French call it like a cadre, where you, you, you have this kind of parameter, but within the parameter 
there's a lot of flexibility that happens. But then you have the jazz music that goes completely off the chart and off the paper. And I'm thinking about people like Ornette Coleman or Eric Dolphy, where you, you have kind of the free jazz movement. Miles Davis flirted with this a little bit in the late 60s, early 70s. And to the to the uninitiated, it sounds like a string of discordant <laughs> kind of strikes. As a musician of your caliber who has had the training that you've had, is this something that's completely, I mean, this may be this may be a question that's more about your personal preference, but um, how do you square something like free jazz, you know, into the artistry and the discipline of the musicianship? Um, there, there's something called modal jazz, which has, you know, this, it's not, I mean, kind of the center, this tonal center. And then, and, and so that gives some constraints. This is not free jazz, but it has, uh, and often people just jam on two chords, you know, they'll play an E minor chord and F sharp minor chord and kind of like the, the, you know, on my favorite things, they play the tune and they get into this riff, which is just back and forth repetitive. Um, and that's comfortable. I mean, a lot of players can do a lot of things, but something that's totally free means there's no, um, there's no structure at all, but, but there's listening. So you're listening to each other. Uh, I mean, I, I do improvised piano, but, but I'm still creating some structure as I go. And so, mm -hmm. so playing something like Ornette Coleman, that's just out there and, and then listening to somebody else. So it's a heightened listening between the, the players and, and trust. Um, it's, it's, it's a tightrope walk. Um, and so my, my guess, and I haven't listened to a lot of it is that it either works or it doesn't, you know, <laughs> and, and a lot of it is, you know, it's experimental and, and, but, but there's probably some incredible moments as well, but there are these little insights like Miles Davis talks about. It's not about perfection at all. It's about the, the enlightened moments that are surprises. And I think you, you, it's set up for that type of thing. And that's what Thelonious Monk said. But when he said that perfection was boring, that there, there was something, there was something even more intriguing mm -hmm. by something that does not follow a pattern, does not follow the script, as it were. That's right. And I mean, if you transition to classical music, um, there, then it's really there, there's so much difference between performances. I mean, you you listen to conductors and and how they interpret a piece is very different. Um, and certainly soloists. I mean, I spend my time on YouTube watching piano concertos uh, and mm -hmm. different. So I'll watch like the the Chopin first piano concerto, E minor, and um, mm -hmm. about three or four different pianists play it. And so, and I may listen to the whole thing, or I'll listen to a little bit and stop. And then let's listen to Marta Argerich play this, and then let's hear Vladimir Horowitz play it. And uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's really exciting, but the the performance they, they they bring so much individual style to you know. So you don't just listen to a, a you know a Mozart piano concerto by anybody. You look listen to somebody uh, like Maria Pariah, somebody who 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 really specializes in a way in that period. And and so and and that performer is not going to play Rachmaninoff or something more romantic and big. And so they they get you know into little specialties. I mean, Glenn Gould essentially played Bach, you know, mm -hmm. on the, on the, 
Yeah. So, so as you listen and, and learn, you learn that it's really about the performance and they, they bring so much, um, that just the, the piece in this kind of pure form that we think of, oh, it's Beethoven's fifth symphony, listen to it. Um, but listen to, you know, Herbert von Karajan, the German, uh, conductor or listen to Leonard Bernstein or so- somebody else, it's going to be very different. Mm-hmm. There's two more things I wanted to ask you about with regards to jazz. One of them has to do with, again, it may be a kind of a preference question. And the second one has to do more with kind of a legacy question. I'm going to do the preference question first. Mm-hmm. It's one of the instruments that sometimes is derided among jazz purists is the guitar. And whether you go all the way back to Django Reinhardt in, in might be more modern uh, examples being someone like John McLaughlin or Paco de Lucia or something like that, it seems to have a role to play. But why do you think the guitar is so divi- divisive when you when you talk to people who play jazz that you know either a guitar has no place in it or it can it can work the, the the instrument is flexible and diverse enough that it can fit within any genre it, it depends on on the player the you know there, there's always a fight between pianists and and guitar players because they're both playing chords and and, and chords um, it's not like there's the chord that's written everybody's going to play it you know you could set up with a a different chord and, and there are alternative chords all the time and, and so instead of say you're in the key of C major and you play a, a G seventh, that's a dominant chord that leads back to C. You could also play a D flat seventh, you know, maybe with a augmented ninth or something else in it uh, that leads to back to the same thing. But if you play a D flat chord on top of a G seventh, you you have a clash. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, so you, you need to be playing together. And, but I think that, you know, guitar players they 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 solo, and so it's a real flexible instrument, and they, and they're some incredible, really adept musicians um, that can do all kinds of things, you know, in a solo. But also they're great at playing chords, and so the so in some ways you yield the space, you know, to the guitar player, and then the pianist is just accentuating a little bit because you can't both accompany. Uh, and make choices. And so unless you're on the same page, I mean, you mentioned George Shearing, you know, he, his quintet, he played with a guitar player and they were locked in, but they were very much rehearsed. Um, so, so I don't know about maligned. I mean, you know, one of my favorite guitarists is Pat Metheny and, uh, and just an uh, incredible composer and soloist. Um, so I, I, I mean, I, I enjoy listening to them. There, there's not, to me, and this is being um, because I'm a pianist. You, you, you can hear the, the you know the name of the pianist by hearing about a measure. Oh yeah, that's Keith Jarrett. Oh, that's Oscar Peterson. That's Andre Pevin, because the touch is so different. But if you hear a guitar player, you know you, you need a little bit more space to recognize them, unless it's Django Reinhardt, which had the, yeah this unique, very unique sound. Yeah, but for the most part, I think so. That's it. So to get the personality of the player is a little bit different you have a little bit more space i would say that a guitar particularly in jazz is a real subtle instrument um you know and that's probably one of the reasons why it's hard to tell them apart you know if you mm-hmm. compare compare guitar players in jazz as opposed to rock you know the guitar and rock sounds can be so distinctive you can yeah. you know within a couple of notes you can figure out oh that's so and so that's yeah 
they you know that's Keith Richards or that's uh, the Edge or you know whatever the case may be because that sound is so distinctive. Yeah. Because they're so featured, but in a jazz kind of environment, they're not featured, but rather they become that kind of more nuanced addition to the overall sound. Yeah, and a rock and roll guitarist is certainly not not subtle, um, <laughs> but, but, but some incredible incredible musicians um, for sure. And so I probably spend as much time listening to you know rock and roll as, as anything i think it I, i'm not going to say it cleanses the palate but you you can't just listen to you know beethoven all day you need to mix right. it up and i have a rule i mean i work from home you know running uh, a heart solutions educational research um and uh, but i listen to baroque music uh, in the morning uh, and then more romantic period until about three o'clock and then at three i shift to jazz and you can probably guess who I listen to. It's it's not Keith Jarrett typically. It's Bill Evans, and so he's my go-to. Um, not that I want him playing in the background while I'm working, but but it it sort of transitions me to calling it a day. That's when I know okay, the day is moving on. The last question I had comes out of what happened to Miles Davis when Miles Davis got into the late '60s and early '70s. It seemed like he got bored with jazz and you know he he often said he would never play i mean people wanted him to but he would never play like in concert freddie freeloader again it was always going to be whatever it was that he was doing at that time he saw no value in revisiting jazz because well because that period of his life had, had passed and it it begs the question to what extent can jazz uh progress or change and still be considered jazz you know that could be part of the complaint about guitars that some people think that this is this is adding something that's quote-unquote traditionally not part of the jazz scene but uh to to what extent do you think jazz can can progress and still be by ear oh that's jazz that would be a good question for someone like winton marcellus you know he could, mm. he could he could answer that because he's a historian and he he often goes back to talking about Louis Armstrong and the the real roots of jazz, um, but um, you know jazz certainly isn't a museum though a lot of people perceive it as that. the mm-hmm. the, the trouble is that um, it kind of became the most innovative in the late fifties early sixties you know with John Coltrane and and some of these things and then anything. You know, things that came after that were in some ways more conservative. They, and Miles Davis became more sparse in his playing, you know, because he did bebop and he did that so well. He was known for that. And and he he sort of left, left it behind. But he was an innovator and he he um, he didn't want to just rest on what he did before. Um, so I, well, not... he ended up doing he ended up doing what Herbie Hancock did when right. when you know both of them got into electronics and they got into yeah. a lot of this kind of new age wave kind of stuff. And I think Herbie Hancock was probably perhaps more willing to kind of revisit mm-hmm. Cantaloupe Island or you know whatever yeah, he whatever it is that yeah, compared to Miles Davis. But you know those are two examples of two kind of jazz greats mm-hmm. who who went in that direction. Yeah, and and it was you know trying to be part of the time, and and so electronic jazz you know certainly be, became a thing, and then it uh, I guess in the nineteen eighties, early eighties, you, you've got um, 
uh, what was it called with it? But a lot of groups had had that kind of that that sound fusion. It was called yeah. Weather Report and some some really cool Spiral, Spiral Gyro. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, some cool <laughs> laid back fun music. But um, I, I I think that 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 time with electronic music is you know is, is part of the history. Um, but you know, for me, that's not what I listen to. I don't open up the catalog of Miles Davis and go to the electronic part necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's a matter of taste. I'm sure some people really, really loved it. But it does it does elicit perhaps the most visceral reaction. You know, whether you're talking about when Muddy Waters played at the Newport Jazz Festival and 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 uh, he kind of represented kind of a reintroduction of blues, but then someone like uh, Bob Dylan introducing the electric guitar, guitar that just flipped out a lot of folk mm-hmm. musicians and fans as something that was kind of like a perversion yeah. of the original play. When you think about, you know, country music, traditionally it always been the old joke was three chords and the truth. And then you get <laughs> kind of like this, what some, what some people nowadays call bro country, where it's kind of like, it's hard to distinguish it from mm-hmm. kind of popular music on mass you know there's nothing distinctive about it and some would say the musicianship is lacking as well there's always going to be that huge kind of kind of blowback to anybody who tries to do something different with something that's considered sacrosanct yeah i think that i I like the way you said that um in a bar is where jazz belongs i mean that Mm -hmm. that, so it's part of that scene and not necessarily in a in a stadium or an outdoor concert. You know, it's an intimate genre, and it's subtle. You know, we were talking about how subtle guitar players does it project. You know, rock and roll works in in those bigger settings, but but jazz doesn't. So in a way, it got away from itself in the smaller venues. Uh, I do like the development of it moving into the concert hall. You know, mm-hmm. that happened with Duke Ellington. You know, particularly it became a serious music and people would you know dress up and go sit there but but there's also part about you know moving dancing and uh drinking and talking and being you know part of part of that moment you know but in, in an intimate setting in a, in a club and and it's it's easy to get away from that but, but i think that's where jazz is most comfortable so of all the things we've talked about controversies and techniques and structure and what have you does any of that tick you off more than having a classical or jazz station supplanted with Christmas music a month and a half out of the year? Um, we were we were just having a really nice conversation. <laughs> um, yes, I listen to classical music station, you know, when I'm in the car, and yes, and and so they're pandering. <laughs> you know, doing nothing <laughs> Christmas music. Uh, occasionally, they'll play something like. Uh, Christmas oratorio or something that yeah. that I can listen to any time of the year, but but I, I I run out of interest very quickly, and and it, and it's really because I played so many of these songs I had to you know playing in restaurants and bars and clubs mm-hmm. and hotels and, and things, so so I just got tired of them. Um, but it's it, it's too much. I mean, tomorrow you know we're we're gonna or today I, I think tomorrow we're gonna do our Christmas tree uh, and probably listen to Sinatra singing some of those Christmas songs. And I'm quite happy with that. I couldn't, 
you know, there'd be something wrong with me if I couldn't listen to that, <laughs> but it's, but it's too much. And you know, a classical uh, station should, should have a balance. You know, you don't just do that and nothing else. It's just like uh, a grocery store playing Christmas songs. I, I, I actively hated to the point where I would stay home and do anything, but, but hear it. So I, <clears throat> I, I get tired of it. I don't think it should be celebrated for three months straight and, um but but no it's it's not a it's, it's it, it wears you out i'm i'm worn out i'm looking forward to january it is strange that radio stations would go from having people turn on the radio to listen to music to turn on the radio and basically have it serve as background because that's a lot of times when people put christmas music on it's typically not to sing along <laughs> but it's typically to have it as a backdrop to cooking to opening presents to you know whatever the case may be it's relegating the function of the station and minimizing it in so many ways um it is kind of a strange phenomenon that they would do this to themselves but it must pay off money-wise because so many people get into it I, I, yeah i think pe people love it I mean, i'm a, i'm a curmudgeon but i listen to music at this stage of my life to to get insights into the hidden mysteries of existence um, and, and not to listen to here we come a caroling or whatever <laughs> that's called. I, I, I hate to degrade some really wonderful songs, but I, I'm tired of it. That's it. Okay. Well, to <laughs> wrap this up oh. and yet place Christmas in its proper perspective, what is the Christmas song that you dislike the most? Oh, an individual song? Yes. As soon as you hear it, you just punch out, you hit the button, or you just turn it off, or you just walk away. There are there are. Is some, there a song? That's a, that's a hard one because there are there are so many. Um, <laughs> no, I, I I couldn't just identify one. You you just call out a tune. I'll say hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. Um, but no, do you have one that just turns turns your skin? There, there's a Paul McCartney song that has this kind of strange instrumentation at the beginning, and, goes, and I can't even, I can't even, you know, mimic it now. But it's every time I hear those beginning chords, I just, oh God, I just turn it off. I just, I walk away, or whatever the case may be. I can't take it. Then there are the Christmas songs that are so overly wrought. And the song that immediately comes to mind is I'll be home for Christmas. And I get that people like that, but it's like people put that on purposely to be depressed. And I don't, I don't, I don't oh, get no, it. You're, you're a terrible person. That's a beautiful song. I mean, have yourself a merry little Christmas is, is wonderful. <laughs> Listen to the James Taylor version because he has sort of this alternate lyric that you know it's 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 beautiful and if you've ever lost family members and think back to christmas of old and so there there are some wonderful things and and i'm 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 reminded of growing up so it, it does bring things back you know you you remember that but but um but, but see that's the thing though when you when you put on bing crosby yeah and there's that you know i it's designed to create a feeling that I don't necessarily want to feel. You're and not I comfortable think with feeling nostalgic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know where it started. It started with um 
when I was in the Gulf War during oh. Christmas, we, we had a thing where we would not allow people to play Christmas music because it just depressed <laughs> the hell out of us. But that song, perhaps more than any, because okay. it, it perhaps most encapsulated what everyone was thinking. But you don't necessarily want that reaffirmed or magnified by listening to that damn song. As fine as it is, as beautiful as it is, as wonderful as it is in isolation, it's just not a feeling that I want to be mired in. And you can't help but go there emotionally every time you hear that song. So did you like go beat up the person who played it? Yeah, we would. We, anybody <laughs> who dared, anybody who dared played anything like that, a bunch of us would descend upon them, you know, and and smack them around a little bit. You know? <laughs> it's, it's good natured, but you know, sure. you know we don't want to. We don't want to observe Christmas by beating up our fellow man, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just something that you just didn't want to hear because it was so maudlin. It was so, it was just so, it was too much. And so I think for me, it's a song that even though I recognize it's a great song, as you said, it's just not some, it's not an emotion I choose to tap into. Okay. So, so I have my opinions on, on music and you actually get violent about it. <laughs> it separates us here, Miller. <laughs> well, with that, uh, perhaps uh, we've exhausted my my stupid questions about jazz and and uh, and classical music. But hopefully, uh, through the stuff that you talked about, that's something that's going to be of interest to people. And uh, because I just I love jazz, I love I love everything about it. My father was a jazz musician, and so I always grew up around it. But I don't think I ever really understood it to the degree that I feel like I understand it now, even though. It's a it's a layman's understanding because I'm not a musician, but it's just something that I love talking about. But I don't think we've ever really properly dug into it. So I think we just did. Well, so it's the old school. That's what we do here. That's what we do here. So <laughs> all right, with that, we shall say adieu to you, Herr Doctor Bourgeois. Auf Wiedersehen, Herr Miller. <laughs> <laughs>